This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. And welcome back to another episode of 99 Potions, Fanbyte's premier RPG podcast. I am, as is very often the case, one of your co-hosts, Senior Managing Editor of Fanbyte.com, Stephen Strom. I am joined, as is also fairly frequently the case, by Assistant Managing Editor, Natalie Flores. Hello, Stephen. Yes. Yes. Hello. Oh, okay. I just heard, I heard you say Stephen, so I was like... I thought you were like building up to something. Oh no, no! And I thought I heard you speak in an accent, so I was like, "Oh, hello, Stephen." <laughs> Wait, <laughs> what accent did you think Stephen was affecting there? I don't. I can't pinpoint it, but it was like a good one, <laughs> oh, contrary okay. to mine. So I was I, like, "Okay, it's my turn to do the bad accent," but you'll find across the lands in between. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Natalie. I assume I, I mean, I know I have an accent because literally everybody has an accent because that's just how language works. That's but I, I, I don't know how deep it goes with like the sort of North Dakota, upper Midwest, Minnesota nice like a, like a good medieval accent that you'd find in Elden Ring. That's what I sound like? Like, no, just no. for that one period, not like <laughs> perpetually. <laughs> gotcha. Well, uh, there uh, in the background that you can hear, also with a great voice, is one news editor of Vampite.com, Imran Khan. Hello. Hi. Hello. Uh, this is my Australian accent, according to Natalie. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. oh that's funny. <laughs> Trying to uh, back for last week. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie, you don't sound bitter about it at all. No, uh, I, I honestly, I, I keep thinking about it. Like y'all making me trying to talk like kid from Chrono Cross, and I'm like, man, I could have done that so much better. But also, like, what did they expect? Like, <laughs> I mean, also, who cares? To be fair, to be fair Natalie, that's the I one care. kid no one will ever mistake you for. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh, if for if for our guest today, uh, Cameron Konzelman will introduce. Wow, you you're just gonna fucking just, step in and take over just, my just shoes. To let, just to let him know end. what's happening here. Um, I keep visiting doctors' offices and getting told that I look 15 um, in different oh. ways. So like. For example, last week on Monday, I went to the eye doctor, was trying to put on contacts, failed to put on contacts, and I was told, oh, no, don't worry, it's okay, it'll get easier when you turn 15. And I was like, you know, I'm 25, and I'm sitting there struggling to put on my contacts, and I'm like, yeah, no, 
yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm sure it'll get easier then. And I was like, wait. And so then I had to tell them, like, actually, no, I, I was born on on this day. I'm actually, like, 10 years older than that. They're like, <laughs> oh, my God. And yeah, so. And, and it's a thing. That this has happened about happening. seven times now. <laughs> it, it keeps happening to the point that I don't mention it willingly anymore. Like, I don't remark it. I just happened to share it last week because something related came up and I was like oh that just happened like two days ago but it's gotten to that point so um yeah anyways you can introduce our guest <laughs> well we are joined by somebody who I don't think would ever be mistaken for a, a child because he has a very deep and sonorous voice it is range touches Cameron Kuzzleman uh, I, I'm, uh, mistaken for some sort of boss baby quite regularly oh. like a baby <laughs> that might have a mustache um, oh, okay, okay. Or, well, you know, Natalie, I'm, I'm concerned because it seems that um, if there's one institution that should know how old you are and where it's actually important, it's a medical <laughs> profession. <laughs> right, like this yeah. is the first time that I went to that office, so I filled out papers, and you know, one of the first blanks they make you fill out is your date of birth, and mm-hmm. I understand if they don't close to look at it but um mm-hmm. it, it was it was quite a moment and you only need it, those first two numbers really when you're yeah, a doctor right Hon- like honestly at a certain point everyone past like the date of birth of 1990 is just the same age mm, mm-hmm. no like it could be 1990 it could be 2005 who knows really oh. well that's when i was born 2005 1990. <laughs> I just think like it sounds really fake when everyone's like, yeah, I was born in 2003. I'm like, it, it still feels weird to do that, but I still feel like that was yesterday. I'm like, oh, you're a baby. And it's like, no, they're like 19-ish. Yeah, yeah, Ren, former former fanbite intern Ren, I was just reminded because uh, she celebrated her 22nd birthday recently on Twitter. I was like, oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I was thinking about how the the new Avatar movie is supposed to get a trailer soon. If you're in seventh grade, you were not born when that first Avatar movie came out. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. That's, that's weird. I don't like thinking about that. Why they were saved uh, a great violence yeah. against them. Uh, That's they, true. They were. They don't understand the three D theater mm-hmm. boom that seemingly everyone thought was going to last forever. And by everyone, mm-hmm. I mean TV companies. They were born into a so fallen they, era. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, being born into a fallen era is appropriate for our topic this week because we have uh, decided to go ahead and move on into. Oh, that was a really good segue. <laughs> Thank you, Natalie, always shouting me out for my segues while I'm mid-segue. We are going to be talking about uh, Elden Ring, a little game that came out this year. It sold a couple of copies, I think. It's kind of an indie title, uh, kind of an indie darling from uh, February by a company called From Software. They decided to uh, put out a kind of a sequel, sort of spiritual successor to those old Dark Souls games people might remember. Uh, and we are, we have, I mean, Natalie, you have not beaten it. No, no, but Uh, I really like watching people play it. Oh, good. Uh, and Imran and I have beaten it. Cameron, have you beaten it? I've beaten it twice. You've been it twice. Great. Okay. And I, uh, uh, range touch, uh, one of, one of my range touch co-hosts, Danny has beaten it like seven times or something. I don't know. A lot. Wow. Jesus. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a lot because it, it, it's a big game. It's a big that old game. Might be run too many times. Mm-hmm. He, he's in it. 
Did oh, yeah. you have to beat it for an embargo, Cameron, or were no. you able to take your time? Okay, cool. I, I did have a review copy, but I was not, uh, I didn't have a thing I was racing toward. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good way to do it. I was in a similar boat cause we got two copies early and Imran was reviewing it. So I was just like, Oh, I get this early, but I can just like sit back and relax and enjoy it as slowly as I want. And then immediately played 90 hours in the first week, uh, which is very funny <laughs> because it's I was very- just that obsessed. It's funny because like IGN did 90 hours the first week for review embargo and they made it under review. I remember thinking like, wow, that's just so much time dedicated to a game. 90 hours is not that much of Elden Ring. 90 <laughs> hours is like half the game, roughly. Yeah, it, de- it depends on how much you want to play through it. I mean, right. like in, Cameron, I assume you probably, a lot of that time was probably spent inside content and stuff. I, I assume you've seen, especially if you've beaten the game twice, most of the worlds in that game. You know? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I guess I've we can seen- get into well, yeah, I think my I think my first playthrough was like forty five hours or something like that. Okay, somewhere in there. Um, and then uh, yeah, I've I've um, played around in it a little bit more to see all the stuff. Maybe it was longer than that. Let me look. Yeah, I think forty five hours uh, for the first playthrough. Nice. That's a pretty brisk uh, run through Elden Ring. Honestly, like, got right uh, through it. Yeah. In my case, it was very specifically like, I mean, this is a thing that you run into these games. And I should actually, before we get too deep into it, if the name, if the words Elden Ring spoiler cast didn't already sort of telegraph where this was going on this uh, week's episode of 99 Potions and the prob I assume the final name of this podcast that Jordan will set after all is said and done, uh, we are going to be talking about more spoilers for Elden Ring, deeper spoilers. We have Correct previously- spoilers correct spoilers this time we hadn't beaten the game i was like very 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 near the end of the game when we uh talked about it last time i hadn't beaten like think the last three bosses yet uh in terms of the critical path we also um, just didn't like understand a lot of stuff last time when we talked about it it was like oh yeah renala is marika's daughter it's like no wait that that no, doesn't really no, make no. sense totally 100%. so y'all were just like making a lot of stuff, stuff up on on mm-hmm. this Kinda. internet out here you're just saying stuff <laughs> it's not it's not a lie if we believe it right legally take that fbi <laughs> uh so if you are not going to be into them their spoilers for this week, you might want to bounce out, wait till you've beaten uh, the game, you know, just kind of get good real quick, you know, grab a Moonvale, cut your way through to the final act, and then uh, join us, because from this point forward, this is spoiler territory. We're Ooh. off the map. The Leviathan is in the water. Okay, I think we're good now to say whatever we want. Say the biggest spoiler that comes to mind. See, so America... Um- and Radigan, huh? <laughs> mm-hmm. I still don't actually under like. I guess that is supposed to be purposely kind of vague of how they are the same person, mm-hmm. but they're the same person, and it's not clear how. Right. Correct. That's that's my one contribution to this podcast. <sighs> my like, what? So my theory or my read on it was that Radigan was because Radigan we know is a half giant uh, because he's got the red hair and there's like some I forget where the lore is exactly on it. But there is some talk about how, oh, giants in this world have red hair. Giants previously fought the gods in the world of Elden Ring. 
because it's a FromSoft game and you got to have giants versus gods at some point. And uh, Radigan was probably uh, half giant bo- or born from that world and then joined up with the gods later on. My take on that was either that Radigan was born a normal person and like was replaced by Merica partway through, like she assumed his identity or that America was like reincarnated in a second body because she because the gods, the the outer gods of the Elden Ring universe were unhappy with uh, how disillusioned she had become and wanted a second America. So they just like split her soul off into a second piece or something. I mean, those theories make as much sense as literally anything else I've heard, which is like the who knows, whatever. (laughs) She just she just became because like at some point Radigan leaves Marika and marries Renala. Other way around. Right. No. Mm-hmm. He, he, and he leaves her ar- Marika's army and marries Renala. Mm-hmm. Aren't they enemies originally? Yes. Yes. During that battle, he falls in love with Renala. With Marika? No. no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Radigan Wait, is a warrior for Marika. Yes, they fight he is Renala. in that army. Oh. They, are, they are fighting Renala during the battle, which came to withstand a draw. He realized he loved Renala, and they got married. They when you had, said leave, I thought you meant like left, as in like got divorced, like he, he does with. He Renala. left the Golden Order, right? Okay, right. And then they had three kids: Radon, uh, Ronnie, and Riker. This is all very confusing, and I don't have any like thing in front of me, so I'm just like going from memory. Uh, and then after that, he left Renala from left the marriage to go become Marika's consort. At some point, either before he married Renala or after he Marika became him, he became Marika. There's some fusion of them, or he was always Marika, and like this is all just because like. The three kids they have are all Empyreans and thus all demigods, so they would have had to have been Marika from the right. get-go. At the very least, at the point where Radigan joins up with Renala, they would have to be... That would have had to have been Marika. Which also, if, if you're listening to this in the future and you're like, oh, we know better now, we know that's all wrong... I yeah, we're, we're, we we I watched a body <laughs> video thing the other day, and the very first thing he said is like, "Sorry about my last video. I made a bunch of mistakes that don't make any sense anymore." And that video, first video was like three days before, so yeah. like nobody knows really what the actual like for sure interpretation is yet. This is part of the fun of the, picking these games apart and stuff like that. It's a it's an evolving document, and also nobody actually really knows the answer unless they go to Hidetaka Miyazaki and ask like point blank, "Hey, what's this?" And he'll be like, "I'm not telling you. Goodbye." Or I don't know. I don't know. It, yeah, it's it's very easy to leave things up to interpretation when you're like, I I don't feel like writing it. Hmm. We should maybe uh, even dial it back. I know it was a funny joke that we decided to jump straight to like the biggest spoiler in the game, I guess. Uh, but yeah, like the the basic premise. Uh, Cameron, do you actually want to basically set us up with like what is going on in the world of Elden Ring? Well, there's a big old ring and it's okay. old as hell. Uh, OK, uh, OK, there's a place. It's called the Lands Between. Not mm. not the lands betwixt the superior land, but lands mm. between. There's not a big the things old betwixt, yeah. right. Oh yes, the things betwixt. There's a big old tree there, uh, and it's gold, 
there's some sort of uh, crumbling fallen empire there because there's a thing where the uh, there was a big old symbol that controlled all kinds of stuff. Uh, and it was called the, I guess, the Elden Ring. And it uh, was shattered by Merica. And then, unrelated to that, there was another thing called the Shattering that has uh-huh. nothing to do with the physical shattering of the Elden Ring. <laughs> no. And in the Shattering... Uh, lots of powerful people in the lands between each took kind of pieces of the ring, runes from the ring, and went off and did their own thing. All of those people are now in a stalemate of kind of geopolitical violence, and uh, they can't really do anything to attack one another and thus take each other's uh, runes and then remake the Elden Ring. There's a lowly tarnished... And a bunch of lowly tarnished from outside the lands between who keep on coming on in to the lands between in order to do the golden path of the game <laughs> right? <laughs> and kill a bunch of bosses. Uh, and uh, that's what this game is about. It's about going around, collecting all these runes and then uh, going and fighting uh, Merica, who is chained to the Elden Ring currently, and then figuring out what's up with uh, all that stuff that we've been talking about with the lore. Right. That's kind of the, a summary, I guess, of what happened in this video game. It's very funny, too, because, like, you mentioned the Tarnished in there, and it's like, they barely, at least in terms of what I've seen, reference what the Tarnished actually are in the game itself. But in, like, some of the trailers for Elden Ring, they just, like, flat out tell you, like, what that means. Like, tarnish, like, everything for the gods in this world, the, the Gwyn equivalents, you know, of this world. Instead of it being all lightning focused and fire focused, it's all about gold. Uh, you get to the capital city of Landell, literally like the trees and the plants and the grass are all just like tinged with gold. It's just everywhere. It's like sickening levels of gold uh, as far as the eye can see. And this is part of all the golden order, which is like the, the basically the people who used to be in charge. They kind of still think that they're in charge. Some people kind of still believe that they're in charge. The, the, you know, clerics and priests that you meet along the way are fairly pro golden order. Um, the tarnished are called tarnished because they are like a subgroup of the golden order. That was like very far in the past banished from the lands between Mm -hmm. before betraying America, essentially. Well, they're sent out with the, uh, with Godric, right? Or no God, Godfrey Free. Christ God there's because there's Godfrey right. Godric Godwin Godric those are all different characters also every character in this game if people didn't know this already it, their name starts with a G R or an M like George R. R. Martin which is very funny I wonder he, if he did that or Miyazaki did that <laughs> he had nothing know. to do with it you can read his blog post about it oh mm. really okay mm-hmm quit accusing him of doing that <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm just saying it's funny. Like, yeah, he he wanted to pay respects to someone who was kind of involved with the beginning of the game. But yeah, as far yeah. as like as far as I know, yeah, the the uh, the tarnished are basically the armies that left with Godfrey when he was cast out of the lands between back before the game started, and they're uh, they're getting brought back to do from soft video game stuff. Yeah, right. the the godlike figure the. I don't even know if you can call it the because America is basically the godlike figure, but there's like a sort of a Metatron like voice of God thing that works for the Golden Order, but is actually kind of really the leader of the Golden Order called the Two Fingers, which turns out to be literal because it's just two giant fingers covered in hair and scars that live in the house in your house. 
and they uh, basically become disillusioned with like, oh, all you demigods fucking suck. You guys can't fight each other. You guys have all given up. Godric is kind of a big giant baby who is uh, who ran away. It's kind of somewhat implied that he uses like the mimic veil to or the mimic crown. I forget what it is to like basically sneak out of Dell and run away after getting his ass just handed yeah. to him by... Um, Oh uh, God, millennia! Yeah, and, he dresses like a woman uh, to escape with the women, right from from the battle. And that you can find the mimic veil in his or the mimic crown. I always forget which one it is in his castle. Uh, so he's kind of the weakest of the bunch. And it's the first boss that most people will fight. But then there's also Radon, Riker, Millennia, Mikola, Moog. Who am I missing? Ronnie. What, what, all kind of like the, the shard bears or the Imperians. Or I guess just the shard bearers, yeah, yeah, just uh, kind of kind of in general across the world, the big r- bosses. Yeah. Mikola, Melania, Radon, uh, Moog, Godric, Renala, or yeah, Renala. Oh, and uh, Morgod, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so the two fingers are like, well, these guys ain't getting shit done, so let's bring back the, that old crew. Let's bring in the old smoke. And you are the, a group of that, which is basically just your equivalent of your Ashen One, your Chosen Undead, yeah. your whatever you want from from previous from software games, like immortal being that is brought in to kind of um, get shit done. And what yeah. that means is very different depending on who you basically throw your business in with. It seems like this is honest. Like I was kind of surprised at the way in which this game kind of not evokes, but kind of is ancillary to Bloodborne of there's all these things that come from outer space that could be gods, could be aliens, could be like old ones or whatever that just have decided to take a real weird interest in this world. Right. And probably because there is, there is a tree before the air tree that had a lot of power and they all wanted it. But like the golden order is just like one of those aliens decided that they were going to do an organized effort to take over this world. And that's how this religion was created. Right. That they they ordained one person with power and sent down a big beast to give that thing power. And that was it. That they just controlled the world from then on. Also, the big thing that they sent might be a giant ant. I thought it was the Elden Beast. Yeah, it's, I yeah. mean, America. Okay, so they like. I don't know if you've gone. I'm. I'm sure you have the the death place where you go and uh, find what what the fuck is up with Godwin. Hmm. Um, if you go down there and kill like the big ant queens, they drop a soul that basically says, "Oh yeah, this is a this is the soul of a Newman, um, which is the same yes. species as America." Yeah. I don't think she's literally a giant ant. I just mean like it seems like the ants are maybe like a different expression of like these weird sort of like artificially created godlike beings like America. I got yeah, I was kind of I, I I assume they were just things that existed that they chose someone at random or not at random but like someone who would be pliable for mm. their ends. Because kind of my, uh, like, with the, and Cameron, I'm actually, like, curious to, if, to hear if you have any thoughts about this, too. But well, like, I don't believe that Mirka's a giant ant. I'm going to get well, on the record on this I'm, one. I'm Number being, one, not an ant. I'm being reductive. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just mean that, oh, I like. Didn't, I didn't beat that guy. Who's reductive? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, <laughs> for listening to another episode of <laughs> <laughs> The, the crepulent uh, Kringle. <laughs> uh, because there's, like. There's a lot of themes in this game about like 
artificial life and people like creating things. There's the jar people uh, that seem to be created by, a, a, the, I think they at least for sure, maybe, maybe not for sure, but it seems to me like they were created by the Raya Lucarian pl- places as like kind of a servant class. There's the Albanorix. There's like the generation two Albanorix. There's the, cause there's the frog people Albanorix. And then there's the fro- Albanorix with like crappy legs. I, that and plus the fact that like when you fight millennia and America, they look like very mannequin like, and like their skin is like cracking like stone and uh, like silicon. Like I always got the impression that like, Oh, these are there. They were like, there's, they're probably sapient. They're like, you know, people, but I got the impression that they weren't like born. I got the impression that like the two fingers or the greater will or what have you created them for a sole purpose of like be our figurehead. I think it was the other way around is that the whoever the god of the Golden Order is sent down the Elden Beast. The Elden Beast found someone who was significantly like leadery enough to start a religion within the lands between. And that person was Marika, and Marika became a god that way. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that that is my impression. And I, I think a lot of the things that you're pointing to, Stephen, too, also have to do with uh, you know, this is a FromSoft game, and so the the world has continued on past its, like, overdue date, right? Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, all those things you're pointing out are true, but, you know, the uh, Mirica-Radagon fight that happens at the end, that happens, you know, in or around or in relationship to the Crucible, you know, and we can learn a little bit about the... You know, there's some lore in the game about the Erd tree in its most primal form is the crucible, right? Uh, crucible literally right. puts things together and takes things apart. You know, you use a crucible to uh, do metallurgy with. Um, and uh, all these other characters, too, right? Uh, you know, uh, Melania is very much a. Uh, I, 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 her body is rotting apart. <laughs> right. And so she's having to replace pieces of her. Um, same thing with Radon, right? I mean, Radon's whole thing, uh, you know, everyone finds it cute and lovable about him, him riding around <laughs> on that tiny horse. Right. Uh, but he has like, it, it quite literally is th- this thing should not be, you know, this right, is, yeah. a, this is an aberration in, in the world and magic or these kind of, uh, demigod or godlike influences make this thing that should not be exist or continue to happen. Um, which is like, I think, really powerful on, on one hand as a kind of like statement about uh, h- how things can work, right? Like the quote unquote natural order of things is always imposed. It's always disciplinary. It's always from somewhere else. And uh, one can be an aberration. Uh, and that's and like one can live as an aberration in the world, um, which gives, I think, a lot of the the conflicts in the, in the boss fights in particular in this game, a really melancholy kind of tone to them, right? You know. Uh, Dia and I wrote the piece, um, the kind of conversational piece for Pace, where we were working through that. Right of what does it what does it feel like to be this kind of invader in this world of Elden Ring, um, who is breaking up a unnatural but stable state? You know, uh, people's uh, there's slow decay, but it is not nightmarish decay. Uh, these creatures are not dying of their own accord. So on one hand, there's something I think really powerful about it, you know, in that way. But on the other hand, it is, you know, you're kind of putting the whole world down one boss by one boss, Mm -hmm. um, you know, old yeller style. And, uh, I think that very much is, is part of the, the intended vibe of the thing. Although I think there are other ways that we could read around it. Yeah. One thing I like, like speaking of, uh, 
different dynamics within the same characters. Like, Marika is pretty much always shown in the same pose. She's always shown in through the stakes and through all, all stuff is mm. she has her hands outstretched. Mm-hmm. And depending on the context you look at her doing that, it's either she's welcoming you for an embrace like a you know a golden god would or she's being crucified and like even through the different stakes you see you see the stakes of her like the stakes of marika the ones you respond at are her without a cross behind her or a not a cross necessarily but like a a crucifixion Mm -hmm. the the uh summoning ones the multiplayer ones have her being crucified and when you finally do see her like when she's becoming radagon inside the air tree like she is being crucified on specifically a giant rune arc. So it's this thing of, it, you, I can't really tell if it's like propaganda in a weird way, or it's supposed to exemplify the way in which she does represent these two different things. One is she is trying to make the world a better place through her weird way of removing death, but also she is sacrificing herself and she is... Uh, somewhat of a controversial figure, I guess, because she's doing these things that are actively messing with the order of the world and making mm-hmm. it worse. Well, yeah. I, th- and she- I, th- I think a few characters tell us, you know, I, we get a clear chronology that is after she shatters the the ring that she is chained to the, the rune arc that's left there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I read that as imprisonment and, you know, sacrifice immediately. And so I, I never really took it. it. It's interesting to hear you say that because I never really took it as she is a welcoming figure, but rather just what ways do we read sacrifice? Right. You know, this is this kind of Christian mode of the crucifixion is the ultimate act of love, you know, blah, 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 all of that. And then there's the other one in which, you know, uh, someone is against their will locked into this position for eternity. Uh, in this kind of stable state world where nothing can ever change. And, you know, that's why there is a, a pretty compelling read, and it's certainly my read of the game, that the the events of the game are done by America in order to, um, you know, either in order to remove America from uh, this position of responsibility slash, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, chainment, right? You yeah. Know? Um, I, I think that the game is the story of uh, someone liberating themselves. Uh, and uh, through through some FromSoft video game nonsense, but but yeah, and I think that like I think that you know there is a conflict there, like in uh, in the inner turmoil in America that like is presented in a way that like because she is and Radigan is sort of a weird you know divine metaphysical figure, and the conflict between like the desire for something to change and also the the fear of letting it go, I think does like literally physically manifest in the form of Radigan in some ways. Cause I think like, like it's very much like America is the, the like washed, I think is like the state, like the, the stance a lot of people have on America is like, we gotta, this golden order needs to be shut down. When you get to the point where it's like, you gotta get to the end of the game to do that. You need to burn down the earth tree. Like one of our holiest symbols, everybody in the game is like, well, gotta do what you gotta do though. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> like even nobody- the finger readers are like, I, I mean, if you're going to do it, just go ahead and do it. What are you standing for there, idiot? Like, yeah, go, exactly. Go, go burn down the tree. I dare you. Um, and, and so everybody's like kind of uh, good with that. And like, I feel like Radigan is sort of, a, you know, a lot of ways kind of a 
physical manifestation of like the other side of it of like no we can keep this going like because they're those two different like motives exist throughout like the different characters in the world like some people believe in the golden order that we work good the way we are or we should return to a you know golden state of the past and some people are like not nah, most people are like no nah, it's it's time for something new radigan is like you know, oh, I, I like went out there. I mixed faith and intelligence, you know, magic and incantation, sorcery and incantations. I, I did all this stuff to try and like find a new path forward to kind of like incorporate and sort of assimilate other belief systems. This belief system of like uh, worshiping the stars and astronomy, which sort of fuels sorcery in the world of Elden Ring. And I'm going to incorporate that into incantations and faith and the Golden Order mm-hmm. and make it all part of the same thing. And when you get to America, finally, you don't fight America, you fight Radigan, which is like this, yeah. you know, the big guy version, you know, like just normal dude fight. And then that, you know, releases the Elden Beast and you fight the final boss of the game. So I always kind of like took it as like maybe partially America's own beliefs about like and fear and doubt about like maybe the old ways are best. Maybe we don't want to actually disrupt what's been working up to this point, mixed with the idea of like being forced into that situation. Like there's Radigan's sore seal and um, America's sore seal. There are these talismans throughout the game all have the exact same um, text on them, which is like solemn duty weighs upon the one behold, not unlike a nine curse from which there is no deliverance. And then there's like the scar seal, which says something very similar, which is basically like implying that like the both America and Radigan, which are again, the same person are in this sort of weird loop of like, they can't escape what they are born to do, created to do, risen up, ascended to do by the two fingers, whatever it is, um, physically and uh, like as as well as spiritually. So like you know, America throws it all away, but I don't think Radigan does. I was like kind of took it as like, oh, th- this is the part of America and the gods here that refuses to let go, and you have to literally put it down to eventually get to like the primordial power the mm-hmm. elden beast i kind of think she has no problem with like the idea that she's going to be a golden order stooge for life i think she starts getting or not doubt she starts really going through it when godwin dies because then what she had done is she made it so no one would die then her son gets killed and all of a sudden it becomes an issue of oh i i said these incredibly unbreakable rules that have now been broken and has attacked me personally. And that's kind of a theme throughout the game, more in Renala and Marika, the two mothers. But when they lose something, they kind of lose their sense of self. And no matter, or no way of rebirthing themselves to like have a new life or move on actually seems to work well. So they are just constantly stuck in this cycle of grief that I think it, it's interesting, too, because Marika seems to believe that you need some degree of hardship to understand what's good about life, and that's, which is why she sends, like, Godfrey and the other Tarnish out at some point and actually ends up causing her own downfall at the end because you know, the Tarnish comes back. Right. But I don't think that it's a thing that she expected that it, that hardship would be that hard on her. Yeah, I mean, it really, I, you know, I don't, we don't have to get, like, the most deep on lore interpretations, but there are all these, like, very weird moments, and, and so my my co-host, uh, one of my co-hosts at Range Touch, Danny and I, who I mentioned before, 
you know, we've done a couple podcasts talking through this already. One one will be up uh, pretty soon, the, uh, the other one. But there, there are some weird things that happen, right? So, for example, like you just talked about, Merica removes the, the, like, rune of death out of the Elden Ring so nothing can die. She gives it to Malekith, her, like, half-brother, like, beast companion, whatever, and he goes and hides it. And then, but I, and I'm forgetting which item it is, but there's an item description that's attached to Malekith uh, that says, um, you know, she did all this uh, stuff with him and, and nevertheless, she betrayed him again. Um, and there's a big question mark about what that means. Um, uh, a lot of people are interpreting that as uh, through the machinery of uh, the plot to kill Godwin, uh, she ends up stealing the rune again or is involved in stealing the rune again from Malekith, which implies that the entire thing, including the murder of Godwin, is something that Merica is involved in. Totally. Yep. Um, the there's, uh, there's like an mm-hmm. armor set or something, I think, that, that says like late in the game, I think it's in the consecrated snowlands right before the mm-hmm. Halig tree that basically says like, oh, all the Black Knife assassins are women and they're all Merica's best friends. Right. They're, they're all part of her retinue or whatever. So yeah. they're still hanging out in in Lindell well after mm-hmm. the the assassination, like when you were there. So there has to be like a reason for it. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess, you know, the and this is a big criticism that I think it's very easy to lobby at, at the majority of FromSoft games is that ultimately we're given zero interiority of, of America, right. right? Like she right. she is known by her effects on the world and not by her thoughts. Um, and uh, I think that's a, a common thing that happens with the kind of big and important women uh, in in FromSoft games. I just don't think. Ultimately, I think that what we want, you know, is like lore interpreters or whatever is we want like, you know, this uh, the revelatory moment of like self-confession. Right. And weirdly enough, a bunch of other characters get that. Malekith kind of gets that both through item descriptions and through just things that he says. Um, and Ronnie gets a million words to say that. Oh, kind of my thing. God. You, know, yeah. you understand every single thing that Ronnie is doing, um, even if not in exacting detail, at least you get the gist of it. And we're we're just denied that for uh, America. And so, you know, is that because from software uninterested in it? Is it because there inevitably will be DLC for this and we will learn more pieces of the background as we have in the DLC for all the other games? Uh, who knows? You know, I think these are open questions, but. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I kind of, I don't necessarily balk, but, but when you say something like, uh, she didn't know that the suffering would be that hard. Well, it's like, well, we don't really know about the gradations of suffering because precisely because from software is so uninterested in allowing us to actually understand what her perspective on the world is, which is, you know, both a tactical narratorial decision, but also like deeply boring, right? Like if you're going (laughs) to do this for everyone else, what is the tactical reasoning here other than maybe, you know, I don't know, um, a, a weakness in thinking about this. Um, to some extent, I like that, it. though. I like that there are characters that are just completely unknowable, that are so high above that we don't even have lore about them, that there's no narrator sure. to speak to what their thoughts are, what their like their motivations could be, because they exist on a plane that does not like make mm-hmm. logical sense. Because like, I think Bloodborne did that really well. It's just mm-hmm. Bloodborne did that with like space monsters. Right. But and that's not I, America, I guess, is my my thing here, right? That's all these other like outer god beings that exist. Right. America is extremely embodied in the world and not alien in thought or anything, at least as far as we know, right? Um, and so it really sticks out. But I think you're right. I think when they really lean into that with all these other characters, it's super cool. I, like, I don't want to know any more about the Lord of Blood. Yeah, he, the... We we actually know quite a bit about Lord of Blood. We don't know what what's to deal with the formless mother. Yeah, oh, the formless right, mother. The form- I was trying to yeah, remember. Yeah. yeah. 
not Aiden this time, but the formless mother. Yeah, we, we yeah we know plenty about um, oh, the Lord of Blood, Gay King. <laughs> Finally, a representation in uh, FromSoft game, a big <laughs> weird fucked up monster guy who's just like in love with Mikola, which mm-hmm. that's like a depending on how you play the game that can happen like almost immediately. You can you can run into that stuff and find all that Lord of Blood stuff, or you could just never ever ever see it. Yes, no, like, the just, only you know the Natalie, only what do you think you about have. a big fucked up monster guy? Uh, I think I think that's really neat, especially if he's gay. <laughs> no, but this conversation is actually making me think a lot about Dragon Age, for example, because I agree with Imran that I, I guess it depends on the characters that you individually take interest in. But when it comes to universes like this, um, for example, if Dragon Age... so. Religion is so intertwined with Elden Ring and it is so intertwined with universes like Dragon Ages or even Final Fantasy XIV, which the latest Alliance raid is focusing on mythology and religion and the gods. And so it it makes me think about, I guess, one of the pillars to me in terms of world building and religion in video games, which is like, I need some things to not have answers because in real life it's not like we we know everything that there is to know of anything we have more questions than answers and so i think part of what makes the religion in elden ring so enticing not just to me but to a lot of people that i know that don't normally take interest in religious themes it's that you have those characters that don't have answers that are on a plane so above you that all you can really do is sit here and speculate with other folks on a podcast. And, you know, you can have all these lore videos trying to dissect their, you know, details and their reasonings for what they do and why they do them. But ultimately it's all just speculation and we we might not ever know. And I guess to a degree I, I would even be disappointed if a future DLC give away too many answers. I'm curious as to what you think, Cameron, about like the best way to build religion in a universe mm-hmm. like this, and especially how to succeed where other games might fail. Oh yeah, I you know I it's interesting to hear you say that because I I always find those um these kinds of religious plot lines I always find them fascinating, you know. I think Final Fantasy 10 is a really good uh, you know kind of yes. key text for me in that regard, right? Because because it is. It's it's about the unknowing um you know, the mystery, you know, in the classical sense of the use of that term. It's it's about the mystery and then the revelation of the mystery you know, like, oh shit, <laughs> there's this whole big like world eating process. <laughs> and, you know, this is all kind of cyclically attached to one another and like, you know, learning what happens to uh, whatever the protector or whatever that's called, you know, when Jet becomes it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, but, but what's interesting to me about that is that, you know, Final Fantasy X hits that point of like revelation. Oh shit, we now know kind of what's going on here. And yet the religious commitment in Yuna and all these other characters is like, and yet we will continue to do it, right? There, there's something, right. uh, as you're pointing out, Natalie, that's deeply irrational on purpose, uh, you know, about uh, mm. the way that um, religion functions and re- the way that, like, mystery functions. I'm not religious in any kind of way, uh, even remotely. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, my my interest in these stories is never one of like reflection or, uh, you know, like, oh, wow, it's interesting to see the kind of thing that I believe or this kind of system that I'm engaged in kind of repositioned or rethought through because that's just not something that's a part of my life in any kind of way. Um, but I do like the story structure of it. Um, I, you know, I do like this kind of exactly what you're saying. This um, you run up to the limits of unknowability. I guess my my weirdness uh, uh, about Elden Ring is that uh, even even the limit of what is a worldly creature and what is a non-worldly creature, even that is is confusing, right? Like at the, at the core, at the center, at the heart of it, what is America is not a question that we can resolve, and and I think that. The flat answer that is uninteresting to me and yet very compelling in the sense that it explains a lot is that, well, it's in the same way that Christianity holds that like uh, Christ is both divine and human at the same time. Right. Right. America mm -hmm. is Radigan and America and is a God and is not a God and is like a, a you know, figure in history and this unknowing eternal thing all at one time. And you can just deal with it. Right. Like live in the mystery. Okay, that that's perfectly fine. Um, but I I don't I wouldn't say I find that super compelling. So I guess at the end, you know, to answer your question, Natalie, I think my thing is I like religious narratives up to a point, and then I don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> and the way to do it is to make yes. one that I like and not one that I don't like. Uh -huh. <laughs> I I will say like I just like if you completely excise the whole idea of like unknowable, like even religion. Whether that's religion or whether that's like outer gods that are just like, oh, they they think in a way that like we don't think, which definitely does crop up here and there. There's the three fingers, which just believes in outright chaos and stuff like that. If you go mm -hmm. down their path, all that stuff. I do appreciate it sometimes when it's just like people do things for reasons that are not like unknowable, but to us from the outside looking in are irrational because mm -hmm. like people are irrational. And that is one of the reasons that I actually think like Moog slash Moguin slash Mikola, all that stuff is some of the more interesting stuff in there uh, to a certain point. Um, where I was getting kind of at earlier is like Moog is in love with a big giant cocoon that has a dude inside of it. <laughs> Essentially, it's like kind of hard to hard to tell. Like we don't get a super deep insight into like the nature of that relationship. If there is a relationship whatsoever, like once how one sided it is, how much of that is just like Moog just wants power, how much uh, it is actual like love for Mikola. If they knew each other before any of this shit went down or what, well, uh, they're, but they're siblings. Are they? They're half siblings. Half yeah, siblings. All, okay. yeah, yeah. All of the uh, every Imperials. omen is is like one of these cast off children. Yeah. That I did know. Yeah, I didn't realize yeah. that. I just assumed that omens were just like anybody who is born. There's just like a you roll the dice and it's like a point zero five percent chance that you're born an omen. No, well, so a point. omens can be anyone, but any, like only the. Uh, the divine ones or the royalty or the nobles or whatever mm -hmm. get to keep their horns. Right. Everyone else has their horns cut off. Right. So Morgoth and, and Moog. The sewer. Yeah, Morgoth and Moog were just like, you get to keep your horns. Hooray. Also, you're going to live in the sewer right now. Bye. Well, yeah. And, and this is why Morgoth is being mourned by Godfrey at the end. Right. Yeah. That's his, that's his child. Right. 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 Also, a lot of people don't see. So when you go into the sewers, if you do it before you beat, are before you beat Morgoth. When you defeat that Mog projection down there, like that thing that is supposed to be Mog, but isn't Mog, if you try to get past it, you'll get to a door that says sealed by Morgoth. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So oh. like he is he is purposely making sure that nobody goes down deeper into the sewers and doesn't also seems to not want people to know that Mog is not there. Mm. He doesn't want people to know that Mog has escaped and is doing the Lord of Blood shit somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, Morgoth also says that he's the last king. Right. Yeah. You know. Right. So, so there is very much this kind of thing of of who does the stable state that the world is in right now? Who does it benefit? Well, it benefits the people who were historically cast off and cast down, um, and who are you know who are the omens, right? The the people who are illegitimate or are not allowed to become um, you know part of the royal family in a very practical way, right? Yeah. One gets to be king, and one gets to enact a very long term weird plan with the the blood god, you know. Uh, to do some other thing and usurp the power of uh, Mikola, of of, yeah. his, of his brother, essentially. I think Morgoth's equipment also says, like, he would have been a really good king had he just given, given like, the ability to do so. Yeah, and I think that's like trusted him. Yeah, that's, like, the tragedy of Morgoth is that he was someone who was well-suited to actually be Elden Lord, but because of what he thought was because he was an omen, but it was actually just the Elden Tree wasn't letting anyone in, uh, the Ear Tree wasn't, that he can't, ever really become the king that he wanted to be. Yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's the whole thing when you fight Morgoth for the first time, he sees all the, like, empty chairs of all the people who would have been, like, on the council and, you know, if they had just been company men like him, uh, which he's, like, the last company man of the of the Golden Order at that point, right? Everybody mm-hmm. else went to go start their own, like, little side religions, their own side weird things. Obviously, Radigan, or not Radigan, um, Radon is kind of in his own weird place because he's just basically lost his agency altogether and is just a big, giant force of nature at this point. Um, Millennia just seems like she's basically half dying and is just kind of, like, licking her wounds back up the Halig tree after uh, being carried there by... I forget the name of the knight who carried her back after the fight with Radon. Finlay. Um, Finlay, yeah. Yeah. Um, Rikard is kind of a whole big thing. Um, <laughs> Rikard's rad. What a well, fucking cool dude. Rikard is, like, this really, like, shitty villain guy. Aside from the whole serpent thing, he seems to have been on the right side of history. Like... He, he realized, hey, the two fingers stuff is weird. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to fight against this. One of the first thing Tanith tells you, Lady Tanith, the kind of like spokesperson for uh, Reichardt, is just basically like, yo, all this tarnished Golden Order, two fingers, America, all this bullshit, we just need to like literally cut it down and start something different. What that means is I'm going to let myself be eaten by a giant snake so that I can possess the snake and then turn into a big weird snake thing and then eat you and possess you or something, uh, which ultimately ends in the the way that quest line ends is wild uh, for people who haven't seen it, which is like uh, Tanith is like, oh, well, Rikard propagates by being consumed. So I just mm-hmm. need to eat his corpse and he'll possess me and we'll continue forward and it'll be fine. Well, now there's probably a new ending that I've not seen. Because so. <laughs> they, they just added one yesterday to that quest. Oh, really? Oh, is that is that tied it, to the patches thing? It's because So the way it ended before was you'd find Patches before Elmer Breyer. And right. Patches, who was in love with Lady Tanith, asked you to give her her old castanets. So to like remind her of what her life was before Rikard. So if you did it before the patch, you would hand it to her and she'd be like, I don't fucking care. 
Like, <laughs> that's useless to me. Now I don't know what happens. But I know mm. Patches doesn't didn't die before. He just sort of left. So he I just dipped, yeah. Yeah, so I'm waiting for somebody to get to that part <laughs> and, like, so one, so I can update that guide. And also, so I'm just curious what happens at the end of that quest. This, this is also one of the very funny things about trying to pick apart the lore of Elden Ring right it's now. It's not done. Yeah, the game like came right. in super hot and it was just like massive chunks of story completely missing from it because, you know, probably related to just like, you know, the normal difficulties of making a video game period. But I'm sure also like, you know, the COVID hit mid, uh, you know, right in the middle of all the development cycle here. Like we saw the yeah. same thing with Monster Hunter. Imran, you and I have talked about this a bunch of like they just put out and may, this seems like a slightly very like sort of Japanese business way of doing it, I guess, is it seems to be the response is just like, put the game out, we'll finish it in a patch. We Financial like, years are very, very important right. to Japan. So like Monster Hunter Rise came out and just did not have an ending to its campaign um, yeah. for like three months. And then they patched in the next mission, the next mission, the next mission over time. That well, game ended with like a character saying like, wow, the big villain is coming. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I was, yeah. in my review of Elden Ring, I was going to mention, I think of like, it's real weird how Dialysis quest just doesn't end right. before I knew that like they were just going to add his quest in like the first big balance update, which is like, it's actually a reasonable end to his quest, but it's, it was so strange in the initial game that even Roderica just didn't go anywhere. Even as the, the round table hold was burning, right. just like, oh, I, whatever, I'm going to stay here. But again, the game came in super hot. And so things are still being added. I kind of wonder what's left or if there isn't even anything to finish off at this point or most questions just done. Yeah, that was the thing about patches was like with Kenneth and Nefeli, like it was so obvious that those were like not finished, like you, that those quests were just like, oh, this is supposed to go somewhere because this character, I gave this character like a big key item and now she just sits here in the bottom of this room while everything in the world is changing and she just keeps saying like, these ashes remind me of the ash, the, the ancient storm. And I was like, okay, this is, there's something missing here. I might, I, at the time I figured I had missed something and fucked something up, but it turned out that it was just wasn't finished. With patches, I was like, oh, I assume that's just the end of patches his quest clap 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 i guess i'll move on but now it's like oh oh there's more there was always supposed to be more well shit i am curious speaking of quest lines ending cameron is there one that sticks out for you as like being the most memorable way that a quest line wrapped up whether it was bittersweet or not which really, probably is I, an a from software game. <laughs> right that's their whole thing. I, I wouldn't say I'm super hot on the quests on this in this game in a general sense. Uh, oh, really? They're they're yeah, they're really none that I they I mean, this is something that I think is important about Elden Ring, and I, I don't say it to dismiss any part of the game, but I think it's a greatest hits game. Uh, you know, I've said this mm. already before a few different times. It it's all the best parts of you know, and, and most kind of grabby parts in particular. I think it's a very cynical game in a lot of ways in that, uh, you know, in its design. But I think it's it's grabbing a lot of pieces. And so the for lots of the quests, I felt like, okay, I'm doing this kind of thing again. Um, and so I haven't super focused in on them. I, Fia's quest is pretty cool. Um, I like doing the stuff with her. I do like how lots of quests kind of circuit through other quests, which, yeah. which is something that doesn't really happen in very many of the other from games um you know so like uh two quests go through ronnie's quest you know uh there's the little uh jingle shoot guy roger uh you know his quest kind of goes through that via's quest goes through part of it um 
But yeah, I would say in a general sense, like there's no quest that happens in Elden Ring that I find as interesting as like Eileen the Crow's quest in Bloodborne, yeah. right? You know, which is yeah. very short and truncated compared to any of these, but so much more effectively kind of charged for me. And I think a lot of the voice acting for Elden Ring is a little flat for me, just to be honest. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of characterization that happens in particularly in Bloodborne that I just I don't really find um in in elden ring so i that was something i was a little bit surprised by i was i was really kind of intrigued going into it of like cool this is going to be you know a little bit bigger from soft game a little bit more you know intensified in some of these areas and and the quest just really didn't really didn't hit it for me um in that kind of way uh which i was a little bit disappointed by but but i think they're fine like i think they're fun to play Mm -hmm. and ronnie's quest is super cool like conceptually all the way through and it's a you know big long one and i i thought that was neat but you know there's no uh for me there there's nothing that's equivalent to um oh the onion knight from dark souls one uh siegmeier um you know i i don't know i just think these other ones really stuck with me more um from those other games than than the ones in elden ring I, I like the Volcano to... Manor quest. Oh. oh, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. No, just because I'm so excited to ask my next question, but mm-hmm. I've already established that I want to go next and follow up on something you said, so you could keep <laughs> finishing your thought. <laughs> oh, no, I just, I like the Volcano Manor quest, just like as a thing. I like, like, hey, here's a bunch of people in locations you might not necessarily go to every time. Uh, go there and then fight people. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I want to ask you, because you're one of my favorite critics in the space, so I am interested in just all your thoughts. And when you said the word cynical open world design, I Mm -hmm. am really curious to hear more about that, especially because as Elden Ring came out, like one of the big things that everyone was saying was like, oh, this is just like Breath of the Wild, like what it could mean for open world games in the future and open world design and all these things. And so I'm really curious what you mean by the open world design being cynical. Right. Uh, well, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm in an interesting uh, position of expertise big, in big quotation marks, right? You know, I've, I have reviewed over the past decade a large number of open world games. Yeah. Uh, and, and and written a lot of things about open world games and have been lucky enough to kind of be working extensively right, during the development of the open world. Right. You know, we really see uh, the, the open world game really kind of comes into its own in 2007 ish. Uh, you know, I, I very uh, selfishly want to say that Assassin's Creed is, you know, an important keystone there. Also, Far Cry 2 you know, these big, important games there. And so I've been really lucky uh, to have been writing, you know, professionally for a big chunk of that time as these games have transformed and changed. And um, as open world design has become a little bit more solidified. Um, And something that I was really struck with, you know, and similar to what you're talking about is, you know, so many people uh, when it was coming out, were like, wow, it's like Breath of the Wild. And there's all this additional stuff, uh, you know, on top of it. Breath of the Wild is a game I bounced off very hard. I I had very little patience for that game or interest in it. Um, But uh, to me, what's really funny about Elden Ring is that there's a lot more obscurantism to it. You know, uh, certainly you're not checking things off on a big list, but it feels a lot closer to me to an Assassin's Creed game than I think anyone wants to say um, or that anyone does say. Um, And when I kept, kept seeing all of these comparisons to like Ubisoft open world games and how Elden Ring was so different, uh, you know, these long Twitter threads or whatever. I just didn't feel that way at all. And I still don't feel that way. Um, you know, I'm working on the mm-hmm. book right now. I've, I've, I've already signed the contract for the book. 
I'm writing a book yeah. on the past 15 years of Assassin's Creed, and I just I I don't think Elden Ring is nearly as different as everyone wants it to be. And so I do really think they are leaning heavily into all the traditional methods that the biggest publishers and studios in the world use to make their open world games. And I think that's cool. I think that's fine. Uh, but I also think that we should like face up to that and look at kind of dead in the eye as opposed to positioning it as if from software have invented from nothing, you know, the from software method of open world, uh, which just, just isn't the case. Um, right. I, I think open world games are iterative and like even breath of the wild, which I, I did not bounce off of. I, I think that game is great. Mm-hmm. I, that game is still just a masterfully curated amount of the open world design up until that point. Right. It is just Assassin's Creed in a lot of ways, like you were saying about Elden Ring, but the ways in which it's not Assassin's Creed are, I think, equally important. And I think mm-hmm. that's also true of Elden Ring and like the ways in which it is just it is you can't have a wholly new open world design because at that point it's not an open world genre game at, at that in any way. Mm-hmm. So I think the I I I also kind of rolled my eyes at the Ubisoft design uh, ethos talk, but mm-hmm. also I think Ubisoft design is so by the numbers not not even from like a yeah. way consumers can generally tell but in a way that like fit when they actually physically develop those games they look at people and go okay they haven't been engaged in the last like 15 minutes we right. have to engage that like there has to be a thing every so often every couple of meters every couple of minutes whatever that mm-hmm. turned on a an aspect of that they would mark on a survey and i think that's also somewhere where from from stuff went but they had a bit more confidence in their own design to go, okay, but what if we give them the trust to just go find the thing they want to find on their own? Right, (laughs) yeah. Rather than that being menu-driven or kind of um, like uh, inventory of quests-driven, which is often what would happen in, you know, pop in a Far Cry and you're going to like find your local quest giver and you're going to do a bunch of jobs for them and they're going to call you on the phone or whatever, right? Whereas Elden Ring takes that and they... uh, they put they place it geographically, right? They transform all of that menu stuff into spatialization. So now you don't follow the person calling you on the phone like cyberpunk style, right? Where people just <laughs> call you and they're like, hey, have you thought about doing a quest for me? I'm the guy that lives here. Hey, what's up? Uh, you know, <laughs> like that. that's the way these other open world games go. You're exactly right, right? The, the thing of difference is, well, now you just have to use your eyeballs, right? Like yeah. you just look around and you will see the next thing to go to is going to be very apparent to you the the next two or three things that are interesting points of of stuff and so you get to that same position of every three minutes there's some new content it is but you know there's a you're exactly right there's a qualitative difference in how we get to that content but i think a lot of the conversation around that has uh has not owned up to even what we just said which to me and i think to you as well feels very obvious and yet I hear on podcasts and see on Twitter people treating that as if it's not even true, right? And, you know, I, uh, FromSoft is a company and they make games and they make popular games. Right. Um, and I think we should, like, s- totally dispense with, like, whatever our fantasy is that FromSoft is not doing that. And that well, they're th- not, like, up on other game design styles, right? That- I think we have a weird idea that for a game to be worthy of praise it has to be a wholly original idea that came from someone's head like only from their head could not have been influenced by anyone else i think like some part of that probably comes from like early to mid 2000s nintendo where they just actively said hey we don't play any other games which is also probably a lie but that people think that a game is better and more pure because it's not 
taking from something they don't necessarily like, which is, I think, to roll back all the way to Natalie's question, people took real offense to the idea that Miyazaki or somebody on the Inform Software played Breath of the Wild and was inspired by it. Which they probably were because <laughs> yeah, a bunch of people played they like, were. <laughs> like in in 2017. The number of stories I heard from people say like developers going, "Yeah, our new meeting was we played Breath of the Wild. We want to know how to do stuff like that, or we want to start gearing our game ideas toward that." And I think it's just such a weird cultural thing or cultural within the game industry of thinking that. Something is better because it's pure, which is just literally never the case. Well, it's it's not even just like looking at other people's games and taking inspiration for them. Like, look at any new Sony first party game that gets announced or shown in any capacity, and oh then like gosh. find all the tweets of people making gifts of like they're using this same asset from this previous game, like the when Horizon Forbidden West, a game that I don't love necessarily, came out. Like uh, at the time, I remember there was like a lot of like outcry, you know, not from from, you know, just Internet randos mostly, but of like people being like the animation of her jumping of Aloy jumping down a rope is the same animation from the first games. Like, yeah, dog, like it would be irresponsible for them to have to like just change it for the sake of changing it, spend an extra, you know, extra X number of man hours on that to try and like make something completely wholly original when the original does work just fine. This game is like a really, really, really good example of just like constantly reusing your own work and remixing it and stuff. Like you said, Cameron, like not just remixing ideas, but like I've said it a million times. Like the, one of my favorite examples is that they've been using that same slime animation since Kingsfield on the PlayStation two. Like those things mm. move the way that Phalanx moved in demon souls. They move yep. the way that they move now in this new game. The skeletons have the psycho crusher spin animation from um, dark souls three, which also like, ties into, I think, where this game can separate itself out is, like, how it uses those things and remixes them in ways that are that go beyond what a thing like an Assassin's Creed is willing or capable of remixing it in. It just in terms... Not capable as in, you know, people working on Assassin's Creed games aren't talented. I just mean, like, in the way that those games are are made and on the schedule that they're, they're put on and how they are, like, developed across, like, 25 different studios that aren't necessarily talking to each other every moment of every day. There is the really... One of my favorite early examples, like, there, there are more, like emotional examples of how this ends up working out. And like Natalie earlier, you talked about favorite quests in the game, but like, you know, for me, I really love Iron Fist Alexander um, and finding the, finding Jarberg for the first time, even before like Jar Baron and like NPCs had populated that area. I was just like, oh, here's this like entire zone down here that uh, there's no reason to be here. And all it is, is a bunch of Jar people like that are scared of me because they want to just me to fucking leave them alone. They just want to live their lives. I remember you telling me, I was asking you like, is there anything to actually do in Jarburg? And you were like, no, that's what's great about it. Then mm-hmm. it has no purpose. It eventually had a purpose, which yeah. I'm not sure it takes it away from you from that or not. But I remember you really liking the idea that, oh, it's just a, a lore building town. It just exists yeah. to build the world around it. 
there's this little like enclave of escaped jar people that aren't working for the Raya Lucarians or anything like that, that are just like living their lives peacefully down in this area that nobody can fucking get to because they don't have a magic double jumping horse like I do that was able to go there. <laughs> and if you get near the there's like a bunch of baby jars and there's like adult jars and the adult jars are just lazing around sleeping. The baby jars are like dancing around flowers and just like hanging out. If you get too close to any of the baby jars, the big jars stand up and like start getting protective. They don't attack you unless you start you know, messing with stuff, but like they do assume a posture without any dialogue whatsoever. That's just like, Hey, we just want to be left alone. We just, just don't, don't exist for you. Right. Like they don't want to exist for me. They, they want to be, they want to be their own world, their own little world. And they're happy with that. It's funny. Cause so the actual end of that quest now is Dialos goes to go live with the jars because he figures at least he can be useful cleaning up baby jars and taking care of them. <laughs> and I, at some point, poachers attack the town, and Dielos fights them off. Crucially, no one ever says kills them, but fights them off, and because he's a useless piece of shit, uh, he dies in the process, or is fatally wounded. <laughs> so before he dies, you get the chance to tell him, he asked, have I done a good job? Well, did I protect them or not? And on the way to walking towards him from the, the grace, you find all these just completely broken jars along the way. So... No, he didn't. But the fact that you can tell him, no, he did not do a good job before he dies as the last thing he hears is very funny. <laughs> oh, wow. I, you see, I haven't seen any of that stuff. I'm only halfway through my second playthrough right now. Yeah, it, that was Huge one of the... Huge mistake. The, <laughs> the launch, or one that was not finished at launch. Because mm -hmm. at launch, it just seemed like Dialos was, you know, a useless piece of shit who could not avenge his maid and gave up. Yeah. Which he essentially like, did anyway, but yes. The, the, he's just like the most gullible person in the entire world. He just like believes whatever. They, it's like the Donald Trump joke about like just believes whatever the last person in the room told him. Yeah. It's just like, I'm, uh, I left my home and now I'm a wandering knight who believes in my, my big family. Ah, these bad guys killed my uh, friend, so I'm going to go kill them. Ah, the bad guys told me that I'm actually really cool, so actually I'm going to hang out with them for a while. Ah, the bad guys are dead now, so I have to go find somebody else to basically tell me what to do. Um, which yeah. is very funny. And you I read do like when he's in. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, so oh. you read item descriptions about him, and it's like, oh, he's just a dumb baby who is protected <laughs> by his brother. And I think it's, right. it's very funny that his entire quest is because he. I don't know intentionally or not, but he looks a lot like Jon Snow to the I point know. where uh, like the messages around his dead body at the end were just like Snow, Snow. It's like <laughs> I. I they had this protagonist because you feed the first time like oh this guy's cool he's going on a, a revenge mission neat and then he turns out to just be nothing and all the item descriptions are yeah his brother was the, actually the cool one he's just he wants to be like his brother and fails miserably mm -hmm. I, I really like when you see him in Volcano Manor and you can talk to him he's like I don't know what I'm doing here <laughs> I'm just here what am I doing <laughs> <laughs> and th that was the last time I saw him in my original yeah, playthrough because yeah. the Jarburg, the, all that stuff hadn't happened yet. So he's yeah. just like, oh, hey. He's that, What's I up? think you should leave sketch of, I, I don't know any of this is, but I'm fucking scared. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, like, and that's, I mean, to a certain degree, that is like, 
all of us playing this game sometimes of just like, I, oh, oh no, I went to, I mean, the way that I originally played this game is I went down into one of the graves was one of the first things I did because I took a stone sword key as my like mm. starting item. And one of the first things you can do even before you can level up is go down into this just, I think Pat Gill uh, on a stream with us described it as just like an escalating Looney Tunes cartoon of just like you open the door and it's like, oh, here's a 50 foot drop. Got to slide down this ladder. Oh, I've slid down the ladder into a poison swamp. Okay, well, I'm out of the poison swamp oh no there's a giant robot chariot that's just on a repeating path attacking me i guess i should run past that oh no there are ghosts standing in the only safe spots to stand that attack me well at least i got away from the big robot chariot oh the robot chariot actually follows you through the entire mission so i like did all of that work down and deep into this into this area and finally got to the bottom and it's like oh here's a giant boss that is way too tough for me to beat and i beat my head against it for like three hours before I finally just left and like, okay, I'll go on the critical path. I'll go unlock leveling up and all that stuff. I just wanted to see if I could do it. And I couldn't. And I, I left. And those graves, I think, are a really good example of just like, again, the idea of the way that they remix things. And and I almost get like this kind of impression of the game. If Assassin's Creed, uh, modern Assassin's Creed, I think more specifically, the, the kind of like post-Witcher 3 model of Assassin's Creed, where they're basically like, what if we just made the Witcher 3? Um like uh, uh, Valhalla, and where it is just like big and goes in every direction. And in this, it's like goes in a, I mean, it literally goes in a big spiral because the whole like island is basically just like a giant um, sort of inverted comma. And then you go through that and there are repeated areas. There are the, I think they're early on, especially in Limgrave. I think the game makes like a bad first impression in some ways. And I've seen people have this impression that are like very much, ah, oh, it's just like every other open world game in that way. And I do think uh, Cameron, you're absolutely right that it's pulling from that stuff. You're, you get on a horse and you pick up berries without stopping. Mm -hmm. Like it's definitely pulling from some Assassin's Creed stuff, but like, Early on, you find those those tombs, and the tombs like look very like chalice dungeons. They look very proc gen. They look very repeated, and they just like put a random dude in as the boss in some of them. But then, like you get to those graves and stuff like that, and they start getting all the. You start going through the ant hill. You go down different tunnels. You go literally underground in a lot of cases, and literally finding ants sometimes. So I don't mean this as a pun, but like <laughs> the one of the first of those graves that I found after that the original one. I've posted a, a video of it uh, a while back where there's this part where you're running away from one of those robot chariots and the way that the level design is structured is just like, it is so perfectly tuned to create the same slapstick sight gag over and over and over and over again because you are going down a slope trying to run away from one of these things and you have to time it perfectly so that you run away from the big horse robot thing before it kills you in one shot and then duck into a side area where there's a skeleton waiting for you. That skeleton, every single time you enter that room, always does the Psycho Crusher spinning, jumping attack from uh, Dark Souls 3 every single time. And the way into the that lava into the lava and it like stands up, puts its head back on. It's like, okay, gotta, gotta get back to it again. And then every time, just a second after it uh, stands up and puts its head back on, the big robot chariot 
smashes through it, pushes its bones down to the lava and it dies. And the way that is all structured is like you have literally no time. You have to be sprinting the entire time to get past this this robot. So you have to sprint right past the skeleton. It's always going to miss you, miss you every single time. And it's always going to land in exactly the same spot because you have to move this way or you die. And so because you're going to be dying in that area a lot because those graves are hard as hell, you just see this happen again and again and again and again in a way that almost like feels like an intentional reference to like a don't give up skeleton sort of things of just like this incredibly persistent skeleton that is going to keep trying this one attack that fit misses every single time that is ge- like geometrically guaranteed to screw up every single time <laughs> and like i don't think that a lot of open world games are like Again, capable in the sense of like um, what the amount of time that they're given, the amount of resources that they're given, the expectations that are put on them. I don't think a lot of open world games are are willing to do things like that for for no better reason. Instead, what we get in a lot of other open world games, you get like the Borderlands method of like you found a text log in this cave that references Rick and Morty, and that's our joke. You know, maybe yeah. I'm being cynical now at that I, point. I, I mean, there's there's also like larger examples of like. You mentioned the Heroes Tomb, which all pretty much suck. They are terrible yeah. dungeons that I hated doing. But the fact that you do them, and the last one you usually find, I believe it's in the Consecrated Snowlands, is w- the one where the two the thing explodes. Like at the mm-hmm. end of it, is that you watch it just crash into something and just fucking die. And like that's good because most people are going to find that one last. And I just love the fact that you get some final closure against these tombs <laughs> these by watching this thing horses. die. Yeah, and just, it's great. Like, it is a game-long joke of how shitty these things are versus the comeuppance thing at the very end. There's another one, I think it's literally may even be uh, the one with the lava that I was talking about too, where there's like a whole side area where you ride one you just like you if you time it perfectly and like jump onto it from above, you, you have to like ride it into another area and ride it to the boss fight. And it just looks like the goofiest fucking thing in the world. <laughs> These giant like big killer mach- like cleaner machines from yeah. uh, the labyrinth attacking you. And then it's just like, oh, this one has a big platform on top of it. I guess I I mean, if I fall down it exactly. Oh, oh, this works. And then it's just like you're like race carring your way through the end of this dungeon. And it's such good catharsis met immediately by oh I'm in a big giant room with another one of those laser sword wolves ah <laughs> yeah honestly these games are more comedic than anyone really gets some credit for Natalie have you seen I know you watch the game a lot have you seen anything that uh, has struck you as like particularly memorable in that sort of way um I mean I, I think these games are pretty funny and I think people are actually like pretty good about acknowledging that like there's Mm -hmm. so much freedom for creativity and for happy accidents to happen um my whole thought as we proceed to wrap up is like Mm -hmm. i know we've mentioned that the game came in hot and things are still being added and supposedly balanced patches but entire endings to quest lines are being implemented i'm curious as to what all three of you want to see from a proper actual DLC for Elden Ring. Maybe starting with Cameron. 
So your question is, what kind of DLC am I interested in? Like, what is there a specific mystery or aspect of the lore that you want to see be the focus mm. of whatever eventual DLC will come out for this game? I hope it is a thing that we haven't already seen. Um, I, I would like a random, you know, from the top rope, you know, is, is that the, the Sea Lord's music? You know, that kind yeah. of thing. I don't, because everyone is talking about, and I actually have no idea why this is so compelling to people that, you know, it's this kind of Elden Ring meme at this point, but like everyone is currently saying, or I keep reading people saying the next, the, the DLC will be Mikola and doing more stuff with Mikola. And I guess that could be the case. Uh, and it does kind of look like, because I've seen a lot of people point to like, well, go behind Mikola's big egg thing. And like, don't you think that looks like a gateway to something? <laughs> uh, and it kind of does, but also it looks like a reused asset from where the uh, uh, the bones are, the the kind of big ancestor bones or whatever. So oh. elk bones. And it just looks like it's been stretched and put there. So, I, you know, I don't I don't know. But uh, I don't want that. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, I think that that like storyline is fully closed off for me. I think that's very compelling. Mikola is dead or in hibernation or whatever. And uh, Moog is dead. That's fine. I, I would like a totally unrelated additional, uh, you know, painted world kind of scenario that gives some interesting maybe resonance or rhyming or context with what we have, much like the painted world did. Uh, in, in Dark Souls or um, Ashes of Ariandel. You know, Ashes of mm -hmm. Ariandel did some really cool stuff in Dark Souls 3. Even though I don't I, I don't like that DLC, I think it is just kind of a meat grinder in a lot of ways. <laughs> but lore-wise, it's very cool because it's like, oh, there's a process for like creation and destruction in the world that like exists and, and that you can think through. And I thought it was a really cool kind of enlivening of some of the, the ideas in Dark Souls that maybe weren't touched on as much as, as some of the other stuff that really got reworked over in dark souls three. So, um, I, you know, I would also be interested in like a weird dream world, like, uh, the bloodborne DLC, the old hunters. I think that's really cool. The old mm -hmm. hunters also really gave a lot of great context to what happens in bloodborne. And it was a lot of interesting stuff and not, not solving mysteries, but giving more context, which I think was really good. So I, uh, I have a lot of faith that whatever they do will be in that vein. You know, I don't think there's going to be the, the America's monologue DLC where we have to pay $4 <laughs> to, to learn, you know, what her thoughts and feelings are. But, um, I, I, I can say, I don't really want to know more about the current demigods that are in the game. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to know more about other stuff in this world. Hey, Ron, did you want to go next? Cause I know yeah. you have thoughts about this. So I, I do think they tend from software and Miyazaki specifically tend to have ideas that they tend to repeat over and over. So I suspect, like a lot of other from software DLC, what they want to do is show us the past, mm -hmm. and whether that's through time travel or a dream or what have you, there's going to be something that takes us back into before the shattering or around the shattering wars or something like that, that we fight bosses that are not, are not the ones we fought before. Like we're not going to go into the same battlefield that, uh, Radon and Michaela or millennia fought, but we will probably, you know, do something. We'll find out how the Lord of blood or not Lord of blood, how the formless mother got involved or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that I, tends to be the way they, they like, cause like Bloodborne, if you asked me before that the old hunters DLC came out, are we going to find out why, uh, Gehrman gave up hunting and stopped mm -hmm. working for the, the, whoever he was working for the church or the whatever. Church, the church. Yeah. yeah. 
I was like, no, that's that's a silly thing to focus on, but that's what that final DLC was. So mm. I suspect that's probably where we'll go. Because like Dark Souls 1 DLC was time travel. Dark Souls 2 DLC was was not time travel, but it was uh they did feature that in the game. Three was yep. time compression, time crash, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh Bloodborne was a time travel dream. So I figured we're Sekiro probably also s- had time travel through like yeah. a memory thing. Yeah, no DLC, but they factored that into the game. They they like that trope, and I think they're going to go back to it at some point in Elden Ring. Yeah. yeah. I agree that, that I think that's probably the most likely outcome. I actually probably agree with you more, Cameron, in terms of like what I would like to see, which is just like something completely different. Like my my stance on this is like basically since I almost as soon as I unlocked the full map of the game was like, boy, there's a lot of empty space on this map where it would be really easy to put like a big giant flotilla or a little island or something that you get on a boat and go see. Um mm-hmm. There's that absolutely not, just like a thing in the center that's covered by clouds. I'm like, your DLC, you were clearly something. <laughs> totally. Yeah, the uh, yeah, I, I can definitely see a world too. You know, talking about uh, uh, both of these things, where we get a lot of stuff about Rhea Lucaria and all the crystal magic that was kind of there beforehand in the mm-hmm. period, kind of between the dragons and the Erd Tree, or kind of contemporary or overlapping with both of those. And that is not. I, that feels like a. Uh, what was the Dark Souls one DLC? Where did you go? I forget the name of the place. Oh God, what is it called? It's you go into the past in that one yeah. too. We didn't fight Manus. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just blanking on the name of the but, same. But yeah. I, you, yeah. I can see a world in which we did that. Right, we went to like a city that was all of the like crystal magic, Rhea Lucaria. Sure, uh, yeah, you know related stuff. That's not the academy, but the bigger presence they had in the world. But. Well, yeah, if you talk to Selen, she has she thinks this is way bigger. Like she mentions the primeval current, which is not a thing that ever comes up again <laughs> but is a thing that apparently Arvinala really didn't want anyone trying to touch mm-hmm. so I, I'd be curious if they did that in a DLC because like the the basis of this game is God slash alien slash whatever are constantly trying to fuck with this world in some way you could if you wanted to just keep introducing like I, I wanted to mention this earlier there's like never really a good time but there's a way in which from software games are shown in store like shown in jump manga but without <laughs> like details or like it's as if I was trying to tr- describe Dragon Ball to you without yeah. naming anyone's names and I think there's a way in which you could just keep this going as if you would keep a weekly fighting manga going right you've beaten Vegeta now it's time to go fight Frieza now it's oh you came back and oh it turns out actually that villain from the original series made an even better robot that's going to kill you now and then oh but what if he was replaced by an even better robot that's a bug <laughs> yeah like Astel is literally a giant bug that came down and destroyed the giant ci- or the eternal cities or ruined them in some way that made them uninhabitable for most people but it's never really talked about or touched on again, which is fine. I don't think they should, but I think you can keep doing things of like, okay, if a giant bug can come down and can do this, what else could? Right. Or what could come out of the ground? And, you know, we raise, there's all kinds of, obviously this game's like really obsessed with like digging deeper, literally going underground and finding things like the flame of frenzy is such an interesting thing in that. Cause you have to go through that goddamn sewer, which is, I don't know what everybody's hardest part of the game was, I don't know if that the sewer was my hardest part of the game, but it was one of the most frustrating and in times at times funny because there is that side dungeon in the sewer that you can go into. It's like one of those tombs. Did either of you find this where it, the, the the side tomb in the sewer where yeah, the catacombs? Mm-hmm. 
you uh, and you go into it and then you like go up a set of stairs and then it's the exact same geom- level geometry yeah. that you just went through. It's and great. it's like, what uh, did I did I go the wrong way? Did I did I loop back on myself? And you go you, eventually you get to this one room where you have killed at that point an omen of one of the big troll looking omens. Um, and there's like a built into the geometry, a corpse of an omen where you fought that other one. And then there's another omen looking down at that corpse that is now alive. And it's like, Oh no, this is not the same place. And then you get to the end of that area and it does it again. (laughs) And you just loop through the same exact level again, but it's clearly new geometry. And it's clearly just like a big spiral staircase of completely identical floors that are playing with you. It's so cool. The best one, the best joke in that tomb or that catacomb is you you do the jar fight. Like you go into a room and there's a big jar. You fight him, then you go into another room identical and you fight an identical jar. The third one, you can see it that there's no jar in there, and you walk in and he's just off to the side. And he just comes <laughs> on, like punches you from the side of the wall. It's like, oh. Uh, but the, the rest of the, the the sewers are just really winding and terrible to deal with and just really annoying eventually is what leads you to the to the frenzied flame stuff which we barely even talked about but like the basically all of the merchants in this game are all like imbued with the frenzied flame they like turned to the frenzied flame they were like a the a religious subsect or something like that that was oppressed in the distant past and now they're like nomads without a home and at some point turned to this weird chaos god of fire, the Three Fingers, which is also just conceptually well, very funny. There's that deleted quest line. I don't know if you, you heard about this over the weekend, Cameron, but like there's a quest line where you could invade NPC dreams. And yeah, if you invade that. Yeah, yeah if you invaded, Lance, Lance McDonald pulled out. Yeah, yeah if you invaded Kale's, the, the first person you see, you see him being tortured by the Frenzy Flame. It's like, I wish that was a thing, because that happens very, very early in the game, because you meet the guy in the shack you meet Roderica in. So, mm-hmm. like, that would have been such an interesting start to that idea, rather than at the very end of the game you meet Shabiri in someone else's body being like, oh, yeah, go meet the three fingers. It's cool. And then he starts laughing evilly. Like, okay. <laughs> that's a weird last second thing to throw at me. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the merchants there, That that's probably um, probably my favorite kind of image in the game. Oh, it's yeah. so good. Uh, when you go, and I was like, oh, shit, these they're playing music. And they're it's playing chaos the music, music that they play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By God, that's chaos's music. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, but but I really like that. Uh, and I did the chaos flame the first time I Ooh. beat the game. And I absolutely love the like. Jeb Bush image at the end of like <laughs> chaos, chaos flame you with no head, just that, you know, that fireball, like, you know, arms wide. I think that's rad. Uh, it, it was excellent. Did you A do plus. it before? Uh, God, what is her name? Your friend, the finger maiden with one eye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I did. You, you did it and before she, was like, she did what the, thing? the heck. She was yeah. like, I'm so pissed off at you. And you get a different ending, which is yep. pretty cool. Or you yeah. get a little, little stinger at the end, which is pretty cool. Where she's like, I'm killing you nerd <laughs> last last question i guess then is that i was going to ask uh cameron you already answered obviously i was going to ask which ending everybody picked mm. or got or what have you depending on which ending i so i i did a ps and upload and just did them all i, so oh. I did the chaos, but my chosen one i think is stars because like mm-hmm. so i actually did so, wanted to go read up on this because when you do the stars ending Ronnie comes out and she says some weird shit that does not like 
jive with anything else she said in the game, where she implies like, oh yeah, we're just going to fuck up the world now, which doesn't make a lot of sense, especially with her entire quest. So I went and looked it up, and apparently on the, the Elden Ring subreddit, people are arguing that the English translation for that ending mm-hmm. is very, very oh, bad. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that. I linked this in our Slack channel. A video. Oh, oh, that I actually linked a video exploring like the why people think it's a mistranslation in our little like 99 potion Slack channel. I was like, ooh, mm. this seems interesting. So I was wondering about your thoughts on it. Yeah, mm. so apparently like the what people are arguing is that the Japanese ending or the Japanese language ending, she actually says are more accurately says her plan of we've sent the things that control the golden order that controlled like the the formless mother all that stuff we've sent them to space they are not coming back we are going to have a couple of generations where we are not guided by these outer gods slash whatever and we're just going to let humanity take care of itself and see where we go and i think that makes way more sense with her motivations and the way like the, the, her entire quest line is she is trying to free herself from being an Empyrean and the two fingers controlling her life. Right. Literally stabs her, two, her like assigned two fingers uh, escort, uh, chaperone. She literally stabs it to death. Yeah. And she also, like, her whole thing with the, goal, the destined death was she wanted to get rid of her flesh, which the two fingers controlled, but not her spirit. So she had to kill someone else's flesh to, to do that. Or somebody else's spirit. Somebody then, else's spirit, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, like, their flesh. That's remained. Godwin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like the whole explanation of how she does that is very cool. Yeah. I think that's that's like finding out how many things in the game are actually Ronnie's fault. I'm like, okay, cool. It's good I'm on on her side, I suppose. But like, (laughs) but it it was very interesting seeing that ending because the initial English translation just didn't make sense with who she Mm -hmm. is. I was very confused. I don't know if the Japanese language one is actually what people are saying it is because I don't speak Japanese, but. That one, what people are saying it is, makes more sense to me with her character. Right. There's, like, such a difference in translation. Like, like that just changes the meaning of so much. So it feels a little egregious. Mm. So you'll find out at some point, Natalie, that all of these From Software games have really variable translations even within the same games. Because very clearly oh. they have different writers and localizers doing different things. So right. sometimes you will see lore descriptions and items that are very well written and some that are not that well written at all and uh. don't seem that accurate. And yeah, you know, for all of these games, there are... Like hugely different interpretations of what's going on in the game, just purely based on the way that one reads a single sentence, right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's very talk, going back to all the way earlier what you were talking about, Natalie. The the dedication that people have to to puzzling these things out and then speculating based on that, it's it is religious in nature, right? Like mm-hmm. in the sense of its textual interpretation from which people build a lot of assumptions um, about how the world, the internal worlds of these games work. Um, you know, I, and you know, I'm well on the record. I think that the standard, you know, pale blood hunt plus Vadi intervention stuff for Bloodborne, I think that's just incorrect. I don't think that most of that makes any sense within the actual game and descriptions that were given. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, uh, it, it, you know, these single words and, you know, or even like just a couple sentences make big ripples in, in the fan community interpretations here. So at, at least it's, at least we're at a point now where people are doing this kind of comparative work. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. 
Cameron, we have got to let you go because we've kept you for 90 minutes, which is much longer than we usually go for these shows. But there was a lot of ground to cover. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad a whole we did. open world. A whole open world. Zing. Wow. There's so okay. much ground I see. to cover. Like, I was talking to my best friend the other day and I was like, the careers of these from software lore YouTubers, they're so going <laughs> to pop off in the next, like, year like they're set for the next year they have their content map <laughs> easily you know planned fascinating out to me is how many of them are simply from the uk i wonder if it's like a voice accent thing yes. where they're like this yes. is more legitimate coming from somebody with like a uk oh absolutely you got a sure. white man either in an american accent or especially a british accent narrating that shit everyone just flocks to it or even australian speaking we were talking about kid earlier uh but yeah, that's like a they're they're set for the next year, maybe two. Not yeah. even mm-hmm. counting when the DLC. Is oh announced. yeah, I was like, there. This game we didn't really mention it, but like this game sold at least in its like launch week like six times as much as the Dark Souls three. Yeah, I think like it's. Uh, I'm sure people are going to have a lot of ground to cover for the next like decade because they are almost certainly we're already working on a DLC that I'm sure will be out in, you know, within a year. And then I'm sure like Elden Ring 2 is like right around the corner after that. They signed a multi-game deal. So we'll be we'll be seeing Elden Ring for many years to come. Looks like it paid off for him, too. Mm-hmm. Like quite literally. Okay, we can finally go ahead and wrap this business up. Cameron, thank you so much for uh, coming on with us. It was good to have somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. Um, Natalie, Imran, thank you both for uh, hanging out. Thank you. Thank you, you, you do it every week, me. so it's not that big of a surprise or anything like that. Yeah, I get I just paid to be, be left out. Yeah, you yeah. do. Yeah, that's very true. I just want to say that I I have not played this game myself, but I vote for the bisexual witches ending. I just think mm. Ronnie's really cool, and I think it's incredible that she creates so many problems. I love that. I love women's yeah. rights and wrongs. No one's paying attention to her, so she's going to create problems on purpose. Right. Uh huh. <laughs> Natalie loves that. That's a Natalie's absolute favorite thing. I love that. That's legitimately my favorite trope. (laughs) Natalie, soulless lover. I'm going to create problems on purpose and then marry them. Yeah. Uh, All right. So we, uh, well, uh, before I get into that, I guess, Shelly, I should probably say that you can find me on Twitter at Stephen Strum. Imran, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at at Imran Z-O-M-G. Natalie, where can people find you? You can find me at Hardy Mesa. That's H-A-R-I-M-E-C-I-A. And Cameron, where can people find you? And also, do you have anything you want to plug and uh, tell people to go find? You can find me at C. Kunzelman. Uh, you can go to rangedtouch.com, R-A-N-G-E-D-T-O-U-C-H.com. And uh, you can see all the stuff I'm up to. We, we do a bunch of different shows. Uh, we do some... We do a show where we talk about Stephen King. We do a show where we talk about game studies. Uh, this this coming episode of a Game Study Study Buddies is going to be really cool. We're going through the Elusive Shift, which is uh, a book about uh, when in the early history of of tabletop role playing was role playing invented. Oh. Like like in when did people decide when they were playing a game like D anD D or some other games at the same time period. When did they decide that what they were doing was role playing? Huh. So it's this kind of very fascinating dig through fanzines and interviews and discussions at the time. And, you know, it's like a 300 page book of, of digging deeply into 
how did the fan communities of of and player communities of those types of games, how did they come to definitions and understandings of what it meant to do role-playing? So it's a super cool book, uh, and mm-hmm. that'll be out at the end of the month. You can go to, again, rangetouch.com to find out more about that, if that sounds interesting to you. And then we're going to be doing a book that's on The Forge, which was kind of a website about... Um, uh, tabletop design from the early 2000s or late Ooh. 90s, early 2000s. And so uh, we're, go- we're running into like an RPG, you know, discussion a uh, couple months. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can come check out those episodes coming up and then the 40 some odd uh, episodes we have before that. And uh, we do a bunch of other things too. Uh, Mages and Murder Dads, our show about the Baldur's <laughs> Gate games and the legacy uh, uh, that they're in. That's about to start up again. That starts again this week. Um, and and uh, our season on Icewind Dale will be started at that point. So you can come check that out as well. That's awesome. I uh, obviously the you are very smart and focused almost exclusively on things that are very RPG focused, which is definitely the audience here. But I just also like on a complete side note can personally attest to the quality of your Stephen King podcast. Just King thinks very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's great. I love uh, I love insight into the, the uh, behind the scenes stuff on people who are just probably allowed to do their own thing way too much without an editor. Um, your George yes. Lucas's, your Stephen King's. Uh, so it's been really fun to listen to. <sighs> you also probably had a fun time listening to this podcast. I assume if you're still listening to it uh, an hour and 40 minutes in partially the reason that it is so good is because of our producer, Jordan Mallory, who you can find on Twitter at, at Jordan Mallory, Jordan underscore Mallory. Sorry. Uh, it's a long one and I'm tired. So I need to reinvigorate myself. I need to get back on that horse, back on that torrent, feed it some raisins, jump back into the uh, saddle. And uh, the best way to do that, I think, is uh, by doing a little thing we do at the end of every episode here on 99 Potions and get myself a tall, refreshing, re-energizing potion and give it a big old bling. Glug. Thank you.